0: Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast where hospitality and travel professionals learn how to earn the media spotlight. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president of Hannah Lee Communications, an award winning public relations agency in New York
1: City. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, a food and beverage writer and editor in chief at Hannah Lee Communications.
0: As a PR professional myself and Michael as a journalist, we understand the power of media coverage and its impact
1: on someone's career and business. That's why our agency created this podcast to give back to our beloved hospitality and travel community that's facing incredible challenges during this time.
0: Each week, we interview top journalists who share their insights and tips on how to get featured in their stories. In this episode, we chat with Jeff Goldmere, food and drinks editor of Esquire magazine and frequent contributor to
1: The New York Times. Jeff is also the author of Hungry, which chronicles the four years he spent traveling with the iconoclastic chef Rene Redzepi of Noma, which was named the best restaurant in the world four times by the world's 50 best restaurants. Hi, Jeff.
2: Hi, how are you, Hannah?
0: Good. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's a nice thing. It's nice to see people. Right? You know, when you're stuck at home all the time, even through this digital vista, it's just nice to see familiar faces.
1: We'll take it. We'll take it. (laughs) Agreed. So, Jeff, we've been locked down for the last few months. We have. What do you miss the most?
2: People. I miss community. It sort of boils down to this meal that my wife and I had at Veronica, a new uh, Stephen Starr restaurant in, I think, the Flatiron District. It's in this kind of cool photography museum. As we were, Lauren and I were leaving this restaurant, Veronica, it had a very narrow bar. And as we were leaving the bar, I saw my friend David Littman. We saw Simon Kim from Coat Restaurant. We saw our friend Yolanda. And it was so New York, you know. It was this thing, oh, hey, friends, what's up? You know, it was that sense of um, community and comradeship that you feel in a hot restaurant in New York on certain nights, you know. And it's it's just a fun feeling. It's sort of why I came to New York in the first place from California 25 years ago, hard to believe. I miss that. I find that that's what's really exciting at restaurants, whether they're um, casual places or fancy places or new places or old places. It's that sense of like, oh, we're here. We're here together in New York, coming from all different backgrounds and we're having a night out, you know? Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
0: Yes. And, you know, actually, the feelings are mutual. And our community, our chefs and bartenders and, you know, restaurants and bar owners, they miss seeing you too.
2: Yeah. We can you know, actually, this is interesting. Last week was the week that Lauren and I returned to restaurants. Obviously, these were outdoor eating, dining spaces, and places where they were very strict about the protocol of observing. Social distancing and people wearing masks and everything. But as a reporter, I felt like I should experience this, you know, as as a person who writes about the um, food scene. I really felt it was my duty to see what that that felt like, you know. I don't know if it's something I'd feel comfortable doing out night after night, you know, but putting myself at risk, putting other people at risk. But I, you know, I did feel like as a journalist, I needed to see. So we went to um La crocodile in brooklyn and williamsburg it was uh just spectacular and then i mean not to go to a restaurant for months and then to go to La crocodile oh my god we felt so lucky that first sip of the vesper was like ambrosia and then um we went up to a place called stone acres farm which is in connecticut stonington connecticut near mystic and it's a chef named james james wayman really talented really kind of trailblazing chef who deserves more recognition. And he and his team were doing, they have this, you know, they have all these different restaurants like Engine Room and Oyster Club and stuff. And they were basically doing an Oyster Club pop-up, but it just felt so glorious, you know. And then we went and got lobster rolls the next morning in uh, Noank, I think you call it. Noank, Connecticut at a place called Abbott's, like a famous place there. I'm rambling, but I'll tell you this, I felt I felt really safe in each place. I don't feel like there was um a chance of exposure. I, I feel more anxious at going to the supermarket.
0: Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting hungry actually just hearing you from <laughs> oysters to oh, uh, the lobster. I mean, like getting hungry.
1: So just out of curiosity, Jeff, do you think any of these new ideas, these new ways that restaurants are coping uh are going to uh, survive into the future? Post COVID.
2: Yes, I think that what we're seeing is what happens whenever creative people are put into a corner. We're seeing innovation. People have to innovate to survive. I mean, that's another reason I wanted to try to go to some of these places. I want to support these restaurants. I want to support these creative people, whom I frankly just love. You know, I support them as much as I can with takeout. But like, I, you know, like I live close to Blue Hill at Stone Barns, you know, Dan Barber's place. I mean, it's, one of the best restaurants in the world is 15 minutes away from me here. So it's so cool to see what they're doing with these boxes. Uh, on Friday, we're actually going to pick up a berry box. So it's all these
0: We saw that.
2: Yeah, we're getting the berry box. We get the flour box once, the bread box, the um the uh fisheries box was really interesting. Because you think, how are they gonna do oysters? Like they they said we have fresh oysters and we will shuck them for you and then you take them home. And I was like, that doesn't sound safe. Like, how's that going to work? Well, what turns out they, they open them, they sort of half open them and then they close them with a rubber band. So each oyster had a rubber band. Yeah. Oh. And they do advise you to eat them that night, you know, so we get home, put them in the fridge and then eat them a few hours later, pop them open, put on the mignonette. Oh my God. Great. Tastes so fresh. And it was so good to have oysters again. Cause Frankly, I'm not that good at shucking. It's not something we're going to do at home. So, <laughs> but what's really inspiring is just seeing chefs and their teams bring that creativity to the table. It's it's the food you're so grateful to to eat. Again, it's delicious kind of food that you, you know, like I'm not going to cook at home. I can't cook like this at home. But it's more than that, it's just seeing their minds at work, seeing the form that hospitality takes, like the way they care about us. You know what I mean? exactly like i've i've seen so many different manifestations of this kind of care and love that they put into these boxes and delivery services and takeout and that's half of it that's half of the nourishment that i feel we're getting from it
0: so um Jeff, we noticed that you've written a lot more articles for the last couple oh, yeah. of months. You did so, notice
2: that. That's funny. You really paid attention, here. We read them all. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry. So
0: how this situation has changed what you are writing about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. That's very perceptive. Um I mean my role at Esquire has changed and it it changed organically. Like nobody told me to write more or whatever. My title is Food and Drinks Editor. Now, this is a good forum in which to explain this because I have to explain this probably four times, 40 times a day. I mean, I, I have to, in so many emails, I have to, I'm not really an editor, okay? Just so everyone knows, it's just kind of a nice title. I mean, I do play a little bit of an editing role in terms of scouting out talent and helping to commission pieces. It's, I'm just kind of a freelance writer, actually. I mean, so I play this role and almost a brand ambassador role for the magazine, but I can't actually assign anything. So when people come to me and they say, you know, we think you should cover this. I mean, there's a whole process that comes after that. Like, even if I agree, I go to Kevin Sintemong, my editor, he's my main editor. And then I'll go to Sarah and Ben Boscovich if it's for the site. But for some reason, when the, when the pandemic hit and the shutdowns started, I just started writing like crazy for the site, not just for print. I, I don't really know why I just felt like, um, I love this industry. I love chefs. I love bartenders. I love restaurateurs and entrepreneurs in this field. I love farmers, you know, and, uh, I felt this urge to speak up for them. My first couple pieces were pretty light, but then I, you know, I did some more heavyweight stuff as time went on. And, uh, there was one piece that was sort of about the Trump administration mm-hmm, not, mm-hmm. in my mind, sufficiently caring about independent restaurants, which I still believe to be true, even though there's some progress I got But um that's a very weird circumstance. I'll tell you about that piece because that piece, um, the traffic was crazy. Okay. Like it, I have never written anything like this. It was, it got like, it got like actually millions of hits. And, and
0: social sharing.
1: I mean, everybody
2: yeah. was
0: sharing their stories.
1: Because you, you had you had written what a lot of people were thinking, but maybe hadn't had the courage to articulate. And you just put it all out there in black and white, in one of the most hard-hitting, soul-searing indictments uh, that I've ever read. Thank it you. It was a beautiful job. I mean,
2: th- again, the circumstances are quite strange. I was that was not an assignment. Nobody told me to do it. Nor did I tell anyone I was doing it at the magazine. It was like a Friday. I was making breakfast for everybody. And this idea started kind of worming its way through my mind. And so I grabbed this laptop and I just started typing exactly what you read. Like that I was traveling around Ohio and Indiana and they were red states. And then I kept writing and then the piece got angrier and angrier. (laughs) And I honestly didn't know what it was or whether it was worth running i'm being completely honest with you there was no intention it was like i opened a vein and yeah it's stuff i was thinking about and texting with my friends about but i had no idea it was coherent and then i turned it into uh michael sebastian who's the current editor-in-chief of esquire and Ben boscovich and kevin Sintamong, and i was basically like feel free obviously just ignore it i don't i don't know what the-. and they were like oh no this is pretty hot, man. <laughs> I was like, really? And they're like, no, 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 it's good. We're going to run it in about a half an hour. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Let me fact check some stuff. Maybe I should um, soften it or I don't know. And they're like, no, 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 we're just running it. And they basically just pulled the trigger and put it up. And I was like, okay, well, that doesn't even make sense. And then I shared it on Facebook because, you know, that's what you do. And I, I look back after I share it and already in like five minutes, 20 more people had shared it. And I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> it's just weird. It's it was just very uh natural. And then Pete Wells, who's obviously a friend of mine, he texted me, like, that's the best thing you ever wrote. And I was like, What? What are you talking about? So it became this kind of avalanche, you know. And I'm I'm proud of that. I mean, I'm proud it touched the nerve. And um, you know, it's almost like a band that suddenly stumbles upon a hit single and doesn't really know how to write another hit single. I mean, I don't I don't really know how to do it again. <laughs> it was just this it was just kind of random. But um I think maybe actually, Hannah, this is like a form of therapy for me, just stuck in the house here to start typing something. It's kind of liberating just to think, well, I, I seem to have a platform as of now. I mean, who knows in this economy, but um might as well Frank stuff out, you know.
0: Obviously, you are leveraging the social media to showcase what you love to drink and eat. But how important is social media for you to find your stories and people that you want to interview?
2: Oh, wow. You're, these are good questions, Anna. Thank you. Um, I, As you may not know, I wasn't even on Instagram the whole time I was at the New York Times. Okay which is freaking stupid. I mean, I, I could have had hundreds of thousands of followers, but you know, a big part of it was I didn't want people to know where I was because I didn't want people to steal my ideas as a reporter. So if I was up in Newfoundland reporting about uh, Chef Jeremy Charles and the Canadian cooking scene up there, I didn't want anyone to know that. You know, I wanted it to be my story, so I just stayed off. But when I went to Esquire and I started working on Finishing Hungry, the book, laura and my wife you know she's pretty smart about these things and she's like you gotta do the damn instagram so you know gradually i built up this following and i and it is kind of funny to think that i covered food for so long without being on it to answer your question i i i don't get ideas through instagram but i do deepen my understanding of the ideas you know and um and it may be that i don't Recognize it as content at that moment. You know, you just see it and you just scroll by. I'm kind of an addict, so I just scrolling through all the time. But somehow it lodges in your brain and you remember it later. I mean, this is the thing I try to tell people all the time. They're like, I want to send you uh, some vodka or something. I'm like, okay, but like, you know, it doesn't, there's no quid pro quo here. I don't, this is not how we work, not how I've ever worked. I don't promise to write about anybody. That said, if it's here and I try it and it's good, I might end up writing about it four months later. You never know.
1: So so looking ahead to the coming months, uh what kind of stories and what kind of personalities are you looking for to uh profile?
2: That's such a good question. It changes so much, you know. Um I'll be candid with you, not too candid, but somewhat candid, that my we're working on the, the big September issue of the magazine. And my idea for that changed three times for my column in there, you know, it was, it was originally going to be a kind of home cooking thing. And then it shifted to a, a more pandemic theme thing. And then it's shifted to something that has more to do with uh, black lives matter and the uprising uh, that we saw in the, in the wake of you know, the horrible incident in Minneapolis, George Floyd. Never. I mean, I feel like Esquire has been uh, commendably committed to covering black owned restaurants and black chefs and uh, winemakers etc but i mean we can always do more and we're stepping it up so that column just changed you know i wrote a different one a week ago i wrote something else i won't tell you what it is but it touches on those themes more i would say that i'm always looking for someone at the forefront someone who's changing the game someone who's changing the conversation someone who will make us think diversity and inclusion have actually always been important to my coverage they have for you know the entire decade plus that i've been a food writer that would be amplified now but it's always been important so people coming to me with ideas i would hope they would keep that in mind anyway but um uh, look the, the whole game has changed i mean hungry my book is about renee ritz epi and noma and um the book came out last year, almost exactly a year ago.
0: Which we love. Thank it's you. It's a fantastic book. Well, yeah.
2: when, when it came out, it was a chronicle of something still happening. Now it comes out in paperback this month, and it's a chronicle of something that's totally gone. It's a totally different book now. It's now a time capsule of – it's like if the 60s ended, you know, and you have this book that's a chronicle of hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan and the Beatles. and So, I mean – That's kind of what it feels like now. It's that, well, that whole era is over. You know, Noma's not over. Enrique Olvera and David Chang and Rosio Sanchez and all the people in the book, they're continuing to do creative things. But that kind of era of trailblazing, global, high wire gastronomy, I mean, obviously because of the pandemic and other challenges, is basically we've turned a corner on that. We don't know what comes next. So I actually think this makes the book kind of even more fun to read because Mm -hmm. if people want to know what it, used to be like <laughs> back in the day yeah. like this is a great resource it's 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 going to be a fun read for you you know it's sort of like going to read um tom wolf's electric kool-aid acid test to learn about what the 60s felt like so um you know uh, any sort of story ideas that are connected to that mindset you know now seem sort of passe i think that every food writer who has a brain is just thinking in a new directions, or should be. So absolutely. absolutely.
0: So um, we really, really enjoyed article by Ivy Mix from Leyenda. Oh yeah, she is an incredible pioneer in doing so many different things and charity through Speed rag and I mean just a voice of. Beverage industry. Yeah. So, as you know, there's a lot of great writers who happen to be chef and bartender, yeah. and sommeliers and barista. So, during this tough time, they have more time than before. Do you have any advice how they can utilize their skills to raise their visibility? Oh, wow. Can they submit the byline article to yes. you, just like Ivy yeah. Mix?
2: Yeah, no, they should. I mean, I, Ivy Mix's piece came, I believe, through Kevin Centamang, my editor, who's friendly with her. And Kevin is really the cocktail fanatic. Oh, yeah. Uh, the pieces by Jackie Summers.
0: Oh, that was that inc- was
2: great. Omar Tate, terrific. Jay May Barizo, um, Amanda Smelts, J.J. Johnson. I played a role in all those, I will admit, and helping to bring them to uh, to our platform. And um, in every single case, I'm thrilled we did. And I hope we do more of that. I mean, what's really cool is just to run perspectives from these voices in a fairly unfiltered way. Just let them speak and let them write and and run it and and not interfere too much. So yeah, they should submit. The thing is, though, they got to have something original to say. You know, there have been people... there. A couple people have come to me with things that are like, I, I want to write about how my restaurant is navigating the pandemic. I'm like, okay, that's not, what do you mean? I mean, that you, I'm just being honest here. That's not original. What do you mean? Are you doing it in some original way? Is there some next step way of thinking about this? Um, no, I just, it's just been challenging. And well, okay, that's not, you know what I mean? It has to be specific. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, Jackie Summers is a very, very specific perspective based on his experience as an entrepreneur and a black entrepreneur at a time when he was the only uh, as far as he knows the only person like him with with a license to do so i mean it's an incredible mm-hmm. story
0: absolutely so
2: um i mean you'd have to be a fool to say no to that story <laughs> i mean it's just yeah. it's unique and he's as you know jackie Summers, one of the most charismatic
0: Oh really, people goodness. I've ever Absolutely. met
2: ever anywhere. So
0: Yeah. I mean I would say, you know, from Jackie to Ivy to Amanda, I mean all this first person voice yeah. and this in depth stories, it connects with you. You just like emotionally connect with that person. And I think we're so busy. We wanna read quick and go. But this long form storytelling is just like it make you sit down and read and just join that journey. Even it's like Ten minutes, and I don't know if I had that luxury of taking the time to read that type of story before pandemic. Now,
2: oh yeah, that's so interesting. It's
0: just so. I think into this pandemic personally taught me like take time to appreciate everything
1: more than ever. We we, we can't get enough of them.
2: Cool. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, I got to say, not to be too uh, craven, but that, I mean, the traffic is really good on these stories. Like people are really reading them and um that's super gratifying because you know that's why we're we're publishing them is to have an impact and have them be read i think it's important for writers who are pitching to us or chefs and distillers and and sommeliers who are pitching to us uh to know that they don't have to try to replicate some fake hemingway voice you know just be yourself just write as yourself amanda be amanda Omar B. Omar. You know what I mean? I, I feel that's important to communicate because maybe sometimes they feel like, Well, I don't know, I'm, I'm am I not the Esquire person. It's it's better to it's just like a general interest magazine with um a beautiful literary heritage and we're just looking for good writing. Good, true writing. That's it. Just be you.
1: Love that. Just be you. Great
2: advice for any writer.
1: So each
0: episode, we are going to have listeners' question.
2: Oh, no. Yeah. All
1: right. So this question is from Michael Kennedy, who's a co-owner of Olmstead in Brooklyn, oh. as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. And you spoke about Esquire's best new restaurant list. And obviously, you know, to do that in the past, you traveled, you know, maybe 11 out of 12 months every year. You drove to numerous locations, probably tried hundreds of restaurants. Obviously, that's not the case this year. So how are you going to go about doing the best new restaurant list?
2: This is a topic of conversation in the the digital hallways of uh, Esquire Magazine, and I suspect many publications. Um, I think we will do it. We will adjust accordingly to the new strictures and the new environment. But The compilation of the Best New Restaurants list is a very fluid and, frankly, somewhat random thing. You know, like, yeah, normally at this time of year, I'd be traveling a lot. This would be peak research. And I can't. Um, You know, the list, I guess we, like, officially had the party in December. But the list last year was basically done in August. And being me being me, I had a couple last-minute additions. And I ended up going to Baltimore. And... Loving Le Comptoir Duvan and squeezing that. In. But, you know, I drive my editors crazy. But um, <laughs> by early September, that list, the, the 2019 list was essentially done. And then I start researching the next one. So what I mean by that is I already have some picked, you know, for 2020. They were picked a while ago because I kind of turned in a list to Kevin Centamon. And then I start going again. So um, there's places I fell in love with at the end of 2019. and. January and February 2020, believe it or not, that I already picked including a possible number 1 actually. So <laughs> um and then I then it all stopped. <laughs> so I'm speaking honestly, I don't really have enough of them yet. We're going to see if I can travel a little bit maybe in September, but we might also, you know, we might also see if Kevin wants to contribute some of it. I mean, I'm by no means I don't have any kind of ego in t- in terms of like hoarding my powers <laughs> you know, like I'm perfectly fine sharing it, so kevin is a has a great palate and a great eye, so we might we might do it in tandem we'll see we' we've we've been talking about we have we've have some ways to we've figured it out you know like best bars um when I got in there best bars was traditionally done by by the Esteemed uh, scholar David Wondrich, you know who's oh yeah, a um, magnificent David. individual, the professor. Yeah, I mean it's just a great soul, you know. But he had parted ways with the magazine, and um, it, I mean it was determined that Kevin Centoman, being a cocktail fiend, and and I would do best bars together. But very very early, I felt like there needed to be other voices in the mix that actually making it um, more pluralistic and more of a team effort would make it stronger. Um, so, you know, if you pick up the current issue, you'll see, I mean, we have mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Satterfield, Osai Adeline, yep. uh Omar Mamoon, Beth Ann Fennelly, who's this incredible poet in uh, Mississippi. Um, we've had Ada Limon, Nicole Taylor, Jason Yeah, It's just so much richer having different voices. I, I, I'm not the kind of person who just wants to decree every single best bar myself. You know, like the thing is. Journalism is really about accuracy and education, informing the reader, and also about entertainment. And I think that these packages are often more accurate, more informative, and more entertaining when there's a lot of different voices and a lot of different perspectives. So, um, bringing in a range of people for Best Bars has just made it better. Uh, So, you know, so I I bring that as context in terms of Best New Restaurants. Like Mm -hmm. maybe there will be a different approach this year.
0: Yeah. Jeff, I think we can actually talk and, and enjoy this conversation under the hour because I think we, have, we share so much passion and <laughs> love for restaurants and hospitality industry.
1: Where, where can our listeners find you?
2: I actually don't have a Hearst address. This is a big reason people get a little confused sometimes because I'm not on staff. So my email address is just right there on my website. I will, I will be honest that sometimes there's so many damn emails. I really, I get a little testy and I just can't handle it all. I mean, some days after a weekend with the kids, I don't even check. I literally don't check my email like the whole weekend. Sometimes I don't have time. And then Monday I log on and there's like 1200 freaking emails and I, and everybody wants a response. Everybody got to be patient because there's so all the, all the food media people would tell you the same thing.
0: Gotcha. So how about people sending you a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook? Because people know you are very active on those channels.
2: Almost every time somebody DMs me, I say, can you email me? Um, That's mostly just kind of like almost custodial. Like it's just easier for me to organize things if everybody emails me.
0: Jeff, thank you for being such an important voice for our community. Thank, and you, thank you,
2: Thank you for being such an important voice, too.
0: We really hope that we can see you in person and drink a cocktail or glass of wine together <laughs> yeah. at a restaurant or bar. So thanks again, and thank see you. you around. See you around. Who's getting hungry? If you have a compelling story to share, Reach out to Jeff and mention that you heard him on our podcast. And of course, just remember his advice and do's and don'ts.
1: If you like these insights and tips, please subscribe and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. And of course, review us on Apple Podcasts.
0: In our next episode, we'll interview Jackie Gifford, the Editor-in-Chief of Travel and Leisure Magazine. Jackie will discuss how this iconic publications is pivoting during these challenging times and why we should keep dreaming about travel and start planning. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.